Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Alex Scales, Director at the Center for Charity Effectiveness at Bayes Business School, formerly known as CAS. We're going to be looking at the topic of mergers within the charity space, some of the opportunities, some of the challenges, the incentives, and some of the research going on into this space. So without further ado, Alex, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. Well, it's so good to uh, see you again. I hope 2023 is starting off on a, on a good note for you. And um, well, you know, you're the director of the Center for Charity Effectiveness at uh, Bayes Business School, formerly known as CAS. And I suppose we could start by finding out a little bit about what the center is all about. Yes, indeed. Well, for almost two decades now, um, the center has acted as a catalyst for social change um, through the work we do with charities and nonprofits in strengthening governance, leadership and sustainability. Um, Many, as we know, are addressing the the needs of the most excluded groups in, in society. Um, And we do it through four core activities, our educational programs. We have an executive master's, um, charity specific management master's. We have a suite of um, what is executive professional development courses, our applied research. And we have a range of knowledge exchange activities from auditorium speaker events through to um, being educational partners in, in partnerships. And importantly, our consulting activities where we vary between something like 80 to 100 on an annual on an annual basis, not only sharing the experience of of the CCE team, but also learning what are the challenges, the issues that are being grappled with out there, and equally the opportunities that are being grasped by organisations, their leadership teams, and their boards. Excellent, and I know quite a few alumni of yours who end up somehow in the most interesting leadership positions within the UK space, whether it's a uh, Girish Menon at uh, when he was running Action Aid UK, or or Mike Adamson, who, who's the, the chief executive of the British Red Cross. You you seem to have your alumni really nicely placed. Well, I mean, we absolutely love following our students um, in their journeys after their time at Bayes, uh, and they are usually so generous in terms of keeping us up to speed, and and often very keen to come back and share what they are seeing in in practice with the um, you know future generations of leaders. So we're we're very uh, thankful to them for that, but also um, you know it's, it's a great way of of joining up that circle and keeping our material very fresh and relevant. Yeah. Now, different centers of, of research um, within the nonprofit social impact, I know sometimes they have different angles of, of what they're focusing on. Uh, but in your case, I know, and certainly you personally, you have a very strong interest in, in mergers within the charity space. Yeah, I do indeed. And I think it still remains something of a rarity to find a, a center such as ours with a you know core focus on charities and nonprofits sitting within a lead, leading global business school. Of course, there are others, but um, I sit on the International Nonprofit Academic Centre's board and my fellow colleagues in the States and Australia, the, the centres, their centres are more typically found within public administration, social science, um, government. Perhaps one could argue that uh, what was then CAS Business School was ahead of the game, um, but but certainly momentum has grown over recent years for that sort of two-way learning between business and social purpose sectors. 
And I think that brings me back round to your your question about about mergers. I come from a commercial financial advisory um, earlier career background was one of the big four sort of followed a typical graduate recruitment program and um, brief foray into the banking community back to a big four um, accountancy firm. And so very much grounded in that financial um, training and experience and also exposure to transactions such as mergers and acquisitions. And I uh, took a short career break to be at home with with young children and increasingly got asked to sit on charity and non-profit boards, bringing my financial experience and somehow found myself, roll the clock forward, chairing a merger of around 10 organisations on my home patch here in east in the east of England. And it really just I mean, a, it opened my eyes. I learned so much from it, from that from that chairing um, opportunity, but also a lot of questions around, you know, what, what, how could that um, strategic move that is typically associated with the commercial, with the corporate sector, be brought to to work with a sector that is driven by a, a core social purpose and with passion in so many cases, such that through merger, additional and enhanced value could be created. And I don't just mean around financial value creation but the much wider could how can it be used for them to achieve their their mission um to a greater extent or perhaps within a faster timeline now you mentioned a little bit the private sector uh what what are some of the most glaring differences between the private sector and the charity sector when it comes to mergers oh where shall i start well i think actually there there are numerous similarities but i think the merging with um amongst the charity sector is 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 complex um there's no share price to drive drive that merger taking place there's no big payout for senior leadership team members or board members who have to ostensibly fall on their on their sword um it can be risky it can often be expensive it can be a distraction from business as usual going through that merger talk period where if it doesn't come to fruition and it's decided not to go ahead perhaps um, management or board have have not had the time to deliver business as usual think about their funding pipelines uh, whilst you know they've been distracted thinking about the merger opportunity and I think it's quite contentious within the sector there's definitely a, a tension there that it, that exists you know does this particular strategic change process that is closely associated with the for-profit sector sits comfortably with a sector that is driven by social purpose and, and a response to need and I think um, the, the usual irreversibility in nature exaggerates that contention and the negativity and there's a strong emotional energy invested by people who typically work for the sector. They are not doing it for, for the money. They are doing it because they believe passionately in the overall cause and typically passionately are passionately attached to the brand of the organisation that they decide to work with. So I think it's, it's not always a, a consideration that is solely driven by economic or financial necessity or, or logic you have to build in this this emotion um as well and that's not to say the emotion is a bad thing because without if you stripped out all the emotion um you know it will take away the the spirit and the drive in which and the desire to make something something really happen which is such an important aspect of um, our charity sector sure sure now you touched on share price 
a minute ago. And um, in the not-for-profit space, you don't really have activist shareholders, do you? And you don't really have hostile takeovers. And you don't really have the sort of market pressures that would make two organizations consolidate if they're catering to an oversupplied market. Give us a little bit of a of your of your of your take on all of those things. You don't, but increasingly there's been a sort of noise bubbling under the surface from the regulator through the good um, good governance code that's been issued and then then updated from um, House of Lords commissions looking at the charity sector and from the public um, around. Um, you know, it's it's no longer still good enough just to be termed a charity and be given the benefit of the doubt. You have to be seen to be doing your work in as efficient and effective way as as possible, and and really getting the biggest bang for your buck, I suppose, out of the the public public funding. So there's that noise out there around um, focusing on effectiveness. Um, as it were. Now, merger is by no means a one size fits all. And there are numerous different ways of collaboration. But increasingly, the guidance, the best practice noise, the regulators are asking organisations and their boards to consider whether, you know, they should be collaborating, whether collaboration would um, deliver something, um, an enhanced benefit for, for their beneficiaries, or perhaps um, expedite the timeline again, as I mentioned at the outset, in terms of what they are trying to achieve. And then I think within mer you know, merger sits within that whole range of collaborations that that can be possible from the very, very informal that we see at one end right through to the more much more formal and, and uh, legally legally structured. Are you seeing a lot more of this sort of merger activity happening, uh, whether it's UK or elsewhere? Yeah, I mean that's really interesting. I think it's a it's a real paradox. It's been forecast since the first financial crash in 2010, 12, 13 that this is what would be happening as a response, and the sector would respond perhaps in a similar way to the corporate center uh, sector uh, when they they um, are faced with high degrees of uncertainty, economic challenge. Um, and then again, through COVID, it was talked about, people are still talking about it now, whether the cost of living crisis will drive it. But the reality is the numbers are not increasing and they've sat pretty static, sub 100 for the last decade. And if you think of the number, I can't imagine what it is today, but circa 167,000 registered charities with, with the um, Charity Commission in England and Wales, it's a tiny, tiny percentage. Now, obviously, those are the only, only the ones we hear about and that are announced or, or take place above the radar. And I'm sure they're more um, discreet and informal um, mergers take, taking place. But even so, it's a very small proportion um, in comparison to the size of the sector. And so maybe that's, um, well, maybe it's counterintuitive. I mean, we, we, based on these crises and perhaps there being a bit of an oversupply for certain segments, maybe there should be more, more consolidation. Um, many people would argue that, but I think it's, I think one has to remember that the sector is incredibly diverse and whilst you know, all organ you know, there might be multiple organizations working within a sub-sector uh, space, be it sight loss or aid or education for special needs or trying to get young people into education, um, you know, education, employment or training. 
actually what I found from from my work and the interviews and conversations I've done with charity leaders is that it's much more nuanced than that and I think people working in the sector understand that on the whole with their own organizations and I think it's too simple uh, just to say they're all working in a a particular space that's labeled breast cancer or, or some other some other cause and say they're all the same so you know there's mass duplication and they should be put together yeah interesting really interesting with regards to incentives and you know from a business school perspective i imagine you're always looking at incentives and and whether those are aligned with with the market and whether those are pointing in the right direction let me ask you about about that uh, with regards to incentives and the the management of charities both from a from a trustee perspective and also from the executive uh, team are there sufficient incentives to 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 make the the topic of mergers palatable in most instances or, or are structures such that um, you're sort of disincentivized from considering mergers even when they might be um, beneficial to the broader broader picture I think there's a lack of incentive, but funders are increasingly playing a part in encouraging collaboration. I think the incentive often comes from the weaker party or parties that perhaps enter into the uh, merger discussions because they are feeling financially fragile and they are questioning their ongoing sustainability and that ongoing sustainability acts as an incentive for them to enter into the conversations. I think too often the narrative in the sector press and um, amongst leaders, and you hear them from speaking platforms, not just in the UK, but overseas as well, is that that merger is a negative reaction to financial fragility. And actually, when you look underneath the the bonnet, um, you can see that typically other value components have been teased out. And I think it's really important to remember that, you know, boards have boards of trustees have a fiduciary duty to act in the best interests of their of their beneficiaries, both current and future, um, and to to really not expose their own organization to undue undue risk unless they can see how that's going to be mitigated. So I think the narrative is quite simplistic when it talks about mergers taking place because of financial. Um, lack of financial sustainability. Typically, the two or more organisations through their conversations have teased out and identified some potential value over and above long-term sustainability of one of the organisations. Now, that's not to say the finance or the economic value driver isn't in there somewhere. Of course it is. You know, you don't have any money. You can't, can't survive. But it's typically much more than that. And they've come across a series of... Um, elements that when brought together over time will help them deliver on their social purpose. Now, you were in financial services before uh, in the private sector. And uh, tell us a little bit about the the sort of professional services that are required by charities when they merge, whether that's in auditing, accounting, legal. Are there straight parallels between two private sector organizations that are merging and, and nonprofit? Yeah, I mean, my experience is is that there are straight straight comparisons. I mean, you need to be able to identify the areas of risk and be very sure that you can, you know, you know where that risk sits and how you're going to mitigate it. 
Um, and in the same ways, you need the financial due diligence, the legal due diligence, often cultural due diligence plays quite a key part. I mean, as it does in the corporate sector, but increasingly is being focused on um, within the within the charity sector to see how that cultural alignment is going to work. I think the big difference is that often the charities don't have any money to pay for it. So perhaps they're reliant on pro bono input. And with that comes, you know, all the typical pluses and negatives of using pro bono advice. Um, and I think the other other interesting comparison, although I don't think it's unnavigable, is obviously within the private sector. You know, you've got a wealth of firms out there who will help you find a partner uh, where the fit's going to work. And we don't typically use that service. Um, within the charity sector, there are law firms and, and um, you know, firms of advisors who who kind of know if their clients are on on the lookout or and equally within the subsectors, you know, it's quite a small, small world. So people are familiar often with each other. And I think what we do see um, in terms of finding a partner is often the mergers come about because organisations have had long term collaborative working partnerships with each other um, and, and so have effectively done quite a bit of their own due diligence um around around the other entity as well as how the working relationship might pan out should they take it a step further and decide to, you know formally to merge that is an interesting gap in the market for uh for that matchmaking those people who would have the ability to find you the right organization that might be just perfect to complement what you have i mean it is and it's been talked about and i think various entities have tried to do it on an ad hoc basis and there may well be um, some people out there doing it that I'm that I'm not aware of but it's not it's not the typical way that it happens it usually comes about with sort of organic built-up knowledge of who else is operating in, in your space if you're going to consolidate with someone who works very closely in your space or equally who else you might want to come together with if, if you um, like in the same way in the corporate sector with with uh, vertical vertical mergers where you where you add a number of organizations together who are in different positions along the supply chain and we see that quite frequently for example um with uh, prison organizations those working to reduce reoffending, for example coming together with organizations that support perhaps the family and friends who sit in the courtroom whilst they're their um, connection is being sentenced through to supporting them whilst they serve their sentence in the prison through to supporting them as they emerge through the prison gates because evidence shows that the reoffending rate is is significantly lower if someone who has been in prison has this strong network of friends and family around them yeah in terms of the research into mergers within the charity space within the not-for-profit space what are some of the hottest areas right now that uh, that either you or your team or, or people coming into the business school are are really keen to explore what are some of those key research areas and mergers the mergers I, I think people are always interested in the same way with the corporate sectors was it a success how do you how did you measure success um and i think the response to that is i mean it is so difficult because by the time you look back one three five years time you know the whole operating circumstances etc are likely to have changed and I think there's there's very little research that I'm aware of out there in academic publications that really are, are longitudinal studies of sufficient size to te uh, tease out and identify whether it has been a success or not I mean I think that's the first first question that, that I always get asked and particularly why aren't I looking at that from my research area 
And I think the other issue with charities is often, and it's an area that so many grapple with so much, is that their actual data collection and collation is relatively um, relatively sparse, I suppose, in comparison to, to the um, publicly available um, information around large-scale corporates. And most of the academic literature on large-scale corporates focuses on those where there's a wealth of publicly available information. And if you take it back into the SME and the smaller end of the SME sector, corporate sector, um, it's, it's equally uh, difficult to uh, judge whether um, a coming together of two or more organisations has been has been successful. I think there's an area coming through which I'm really interested in is around the power of um, innovation and disruption that can be caused, uh, created positively um, through through merger and how, how that can come to work. We've been seeing quite a few examples with um, small, the sort of small feet of foot, agile, techie driven, social media led and funded organisations who get to a certain stage and they they are unable to, they're sort of too big to be small and too small to be big, as it were. And they often looking for, for homes where they can continue working within the culture that they have found so successful. Um, but actually, they also need some more robust systems, processes, structure put around them. And there's been quite a lot of conversations and um, quite a lot of conversations around that and how you might get that to work, both through collabor collaborative partnerships, but equally through merger. Really interesting. Very, very interesting. So you touched on the fact that you were in the private sector, but tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are today. Sounds like you have a really cool job, very interesting area of research, uh, great, great institution to be uh, connected to. How did you end up where you are today? Did you think that you were going to be in this space uh, when you were when you were one, in one of the big four? Not at all. Uh, not at all. I suppose in some ways I think I've come full circle. I studied geography at University College London as an undergraduate. I adored the social aspect. I took as many courses as I, as I could out of the School of Oriental and African Studies, as it was then then um, called. I'm guessing it still is called that, actually. Um, and so I always had a deep interest in economic economic development was the core part of, of my geography degree that I loved the most. Um, then I think I got caught up in the sort of graduate trainee, professional development expertise, et cetera, et cetera, you know, buying the first car, earning enough money, those those sorts of things. So I kind of think feel I've come full circle. But importantly, and, and a more serious answer to your question, it was that leading that merger experience as a chair um, back nearly 10 years ago now that really captivated me and, and really caught my interest in a sector that I really didn't know that much about over and above, you know, doing fun runs and donating and I'd always given to charity and it had been part of part of my life. And so I started doing some consulting work back with um financial advisory firms on their non-profit clients so keeping that advisory work going and I got more and more interested and then I started um, being I was introduced to what was then CAS business school now Bayes um, did some guest lectures learned about the center for charity effectiveness there and then roll the clock forward I think it was about six years ago the role came up to to lead um, part of the part of the center and I threw my hat into the ring and, and got appointed so for me, it's kind of a dream role because I keep my client client um, consulting advisory role, albeit I'm very much on the fringe, fringes now because of the management responsibilities. But that's kind of been the golden thread through my career. Also, I've been introduced to the world of education. Um, and for me, the centre with the social purpose sitting within the 
relatively traditional business management school um, is, a, is a perfect fit. So that's opportunities for those sort of cross-sector learning um, education. It's a delight to supervise MBA students who've, who've signed up from corporate backgrounds who then think they may want to do their dissertation on an aspect that has a social purpose attached to it. And I, and I get involved with them. So it's very much about cross-sector working and learning that, that fuels my interest. Well, fascinating and, and lucky you uh, that you, you get to do what you do. With regards to the MBAs, are, are you noticing an increasing appetite for uh, research that uh, delves into the social purpose side of things? There's a steady stream and within the, the PhD students as well. And the area I think where I mean I don't I don't have any any firm statistics to, to evidence that, but we we know and across the university world that Gen Z, um, you know, they are very focused on combining for profit with social purpose to the extent that um, we launched and we we teach a typical undergraduate. Uh, business management program, as as many do, that we launched last year, an, an undergraduate a pathway business management with social purpose, which has been hugely popular because um, you know the young people want to want to learn, and they're moving into a world that's much more much more socially focused, and so we're able to position Bayes as as very much signing having signed up to the UN's principle of responsible management education, and we can demonstrate how both Bayes and City University are working in multiple ways, not just through um, my centre, but um, through multiple activities that they do, how they're contributing to the sustainable development goals as well. I think it's amazing how, um, again, anecdotal evidence, I guess, but from, you know, if I, if I give a lecture at a, at a university or a business school, uh, the number of people who are doing a business degree who are really keen to get into either impact investing or foundation space or not-for-profit space or social entrepreneurship, it's much more much more than it used to be 20 years ago. And, and, and also just the, 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 uh, the arrival of so many really strong research centers uh, within different universities that are that are getting involved, whether it's a you know Center for Strategic Philanthropy at Cambridge or Marshall at the London School of Economics or the Center for High Impact Philanthropy at University of Pennsylvania. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff happening, and I think it's really great. Bodes well for at least the the, the next generations, right? Yeah, I think it definitely bodes well, and that sort of curricular innovation within the teaching space is really important at whatever levels of of education. Um, we're talking about I, I, we often say you know those binary concepts are outdated and there's the real need to be able to blend enterprise with social purpose coming to the fore I think it's really exciting exciting uh, times whether it will shift the needle uh, to what degree I'm, I'm not sure but it, it can't can't be a bad thing that is for sure yeah I have a feeling you're an optimist at heart I think one has to has to hold that element of hope amongst the doom and gloom um, otherwise, we wouldn't all be striving. And I think that goes back to that passion and enthusiasm and optimism that that is held by by so many chief execs. I'm really fortunate. I host numerous chief execs breakfast forums and chair chief exec breakfast forums. And and it's that enthusiasm, unending, unwavering enthusiasm that they hold that I think keeps them keeps them very, very focused on the purpose that they're trying to achieve. Absolutely. And now on that note of enthusiasm and optimism, let me ask you for a key takeaway. What's the one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? 
Well, I think it's probably been said before by some some of uh, your interviewees, and I've certainly heard it out in the field. But you know, if we're going to find solutions to the the many many huge societal issues that we're currently facing, it's got about learning how to work harder and smarter collaboratively. Um, so many organisations from whatever sector, corporate, public and charity, have missions that are way bigger than they can ever achieve um, on their own. So, um, you know, how, how do they learn to learn what makes a successful collaboration such that, you know, the maximum collective impact is going to be created? And I think we're just at the starting out of, of that journey, but there's, there's real noise coming through around collective impact now. Um, and I hope, you know, if we look back in one, three, five years time with everyone taking small steps, um, I hope we will be able to look back and really see the distance that we've all traveled together. I love it. I love it. Here's to collective impact and to your continued success. And thank you so very much, Alex, for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been really great. Well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Alex Scales, Director at the Center for Charity Effectiveness at Bayes Business School, formerly known as CAS. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. It helps others to find this show. And I'll catch you on Monday. Thanks so much. Be well.